The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is powered by theflycrate.com, an online fly shop. Join the Quarterly Fly Club today, your source for all things fly fishing. And wait for it films. For action-packed fly fishing videos and camera-related content, check out Wait For It Films on YouTube or at www.theweightcreativeco.com. And Broken Tippet Fly Company. Blog and fishing apparel and accessories. Check them out online at brokentippet.com. You, you, you are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing ninety seven podcast. Well, it um, initially it was books, and and I didn't have. I don't remember going fly fishing with many people. Um, it was I was mostly on my own for for a while. Um, then I learned some stuff from Russ Thornberry when he. he uh, he started the fishing hole, and I worked there a bit uh, in, the, uh, in my summers, I guess, when I wasn't at university. And then, um, so we fished some, not a lot, because he was running the store, and I was doing other things. But uh, later on, uh, by far the biggest influence on me was was Lee Perkins, because he mm. he became a, a good friend. I did. I, I don't mean to make it sound like I hung out with him all the time. I I didn't even see him every year, um, but he would. He came up and and uh fished the bow and i think it was like 1978 or 9 and i i've been kind of inviting him for quite a long time and he was never able to make it and then um one he came up for one day in september with he and his son dave um came up uh, because i'd been um tempting him with all the all the stories of the really good rising fish dry fly fishing that we were having on the bow and that was his thing he just loved being able to cast a rising fish and loved the, the Henry's Fork of the Snake and lots of those rivers and I, I finally convinced him to come up and, and try the bow and we had a terrific day and he, he wrote about that day in the Orvis News which was their in-house well, publication newspaper mm-hmm. thing that went out to all their catalog customers and at that time it was the largest circulation fly fishing publication in North America um, and so that kind of we had just kind of Spent a couple of years getting the guiding thing going, and that um, that sort of propelled it. Uh, the bow, the start of getting the bow to be recognized for a really good fishery, you know, um, mm-hmm. particularly for folks in the U.S. And there are lots of magazine articles about it. But at that point, he was coming up every year, uh, and he'd bring, you know, his some family friends or some business associates or something, and fish the bow for about three days. And, so I spent quite a bit of time with him through that period, and that's when I really picked up on, on not just the fishing stuff, but on the um, he, he was he was such a and there's a piece about him in in the Stroke Tracks book, but uh, he was he was a real um, he, I think maybe one of his greatest traits was his curiosity. He was always you know wondering why this happened, why that happened, and not just to do with fish. Like he'd be. Mm. Watch, watching the birds and um, and the insects and uh, all kinds of things and, and he kind of taught me that and he, yep. he without he, he taught me without teaching me if you know what I mean he never said now sit down and listen I'm going to tell you yep. it was just by observing him and uh, he was so experienced and he he along with another friend um, now deceased from from Red Deer uh, Bob's Camel I think really showed me how you 
you, you enjoy this stuff, and by this I mean hunting and fishing, um, regardless, or you have to enjoy it, regardless of how successful you are. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by the Fly Crate. The Fly Crate is an online fly shop where you can save more on flies and gear. Shop between hundreds of unique flies and join the quarterly fly club for hand-picked fly assortments for each season. Exclusively for our podcast listeners, you can save an additional 10% on the Fly Crate by using the code FLYFISH97. Go to theflycrate.com and use the code FLYFISH97 at checkout to save 10%. Well, welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Very happy you chose to join us wherever you happen to be listening. And we are going to head out to a gorgeous part of the world, Turner Valley in Alberta, Canada. Really grateful to have Jim McLennan on the line. And we're going to chat all things fly fish and do what we always do on this show. And this gentleman has a vast array of knowledge in fly fishing, tying, entomology. He has a fly fishing school. He's a writer, uh, musician, loves photography, author. Um, just got his fifth book, actually right in front of me right now, called Trout Tracks. Really enjoying that one. Uh, one of the first guides on the Bow River. That's saying something. And uh, co-owner of uh, the first fly shop in Calgary, uh, Country Pleasures from 82 to 2000. Worked with Orvis. Uh, 2000, 2004. It's, uh, it's a long resume, my friend. I'm going to run out of wind here. But, Jim, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm happy to do it, Mark. It, it, it's going to be fun. Uh, but when you're saying all that stuff, what was flashing through my mind was only somebody who's quite old <laughs> now to do all that stuff. So, yeah, come on now. Yeah. So well, yeah. do you mind if I ask how old are you? Um, I'm 69 and a half. That's young. Which, That's which I like to point out is not, well, I'm in my 70th year. I'm not 70 yet. There you go. You still got lots <laughs> yeah. of fly fishing to do. Um, well, and, uh, that's the plan. And writing. Um, really enjoying mm-hmm. your new book, Trout Tracks. We'll dig into that. Something, for me, this show is your story. And what I like to do, Jim, is kind of dig into your fly fishing history, if you will. Kind of find out why you do this. Like, I mean, that that to me is kind of always the, the ultimate question, but... First off, why don't we start at the beginning for us? Where did you first kind of come to discover all things fly fishing and tying? Well, I um, I started fishing with my with my dad. Uh, I grew up in Edmonton in, in Alberta, and we used to spend good portions of the summer in Jasper National Park. And uh, so I we would fish there, and he my dad would take me fishing, and he had some some really close friends who were also spent the summers there who were even more uh, avid than he was. Now this was not fly fishing, but it was fishing with, you know, worms and uh, spinning tackle and all that stuff. And um, so we used to fish with them and I, I really liked fishing at that point. And, and then somewhere along the line, I guess it probably coincided with my dad retiring. Um, and so he thought he was going to take up fly fishing because he had some other friends, uh, in Edmonton and, and and some other places too, who um, were keen, knowledgeable fly fishers, and he, I think, basically went to them and said, "I think I want to do this," and so they helped him get all the tackle and um, and get started. And I, I tagged along because I was, you know, I thought it was pretty cool. And uh, the the extreme passion sort of bypassed my dad. He never quite got around to doing it a lot, um, but it did 
caught me somehow. And one of the other things I think that probably corresponded to this was um, one of my dad's uh, great friends was Lee Perkins, the uh, mm. who passed away just a little over a year ago and was the the owner of the Orvis Company from 1965 on. Anyway, my dad knew him prior to uh, Lee's purchase of Orvis uh, in 65, and he was he would come out and, and hunt ducks and up on birds with my my father every every October. And then when he bought Orvis, um, he sent my dad uh, a, a fly rod, an Orvis fly rod, which was this all kind of coincided with the time that we were, uh, dad and I were both getting interested in this. And then that kind of tipped me a little further, I think. And then when Lee would come out, he, he continued to come out and, and would hunt and we'd always talk about fishing. Mm-hmm. And so I just, some of the along the line too, I got, um, I, I found some fly fishing books and I, I don't know where they came from. I don't know whether my dad bought them. I'm guessing it's more likely one of his friends loaned him some, <laughs> uh, some fly fishing books. So the one that I remember most was called Trout by Ray Bergman. It was written in 1939, I think, but it, it's a really good book and it, it really made uh, the whole notion of fly fishing compelling to me. And I just, I, I just wanted to do it. <clears throat> and we did as much as we could in, in the summers in Jasper. And then later on when I got my driver's license, I, I was able to go other places, so I, yeah. that's when I sort of branched out into the, the trout streams southwest of Edmonton, and eventually ended up down on the bow in the early '70s, I guess, when I first fished the bow. So how, how different a, gra- a gradual thing? How different a river was it back then in the '70s? Well, it was a lot different uh, in many ways. Uh, I suppose the most notable thing was there's nobody on it. Yeah, you know, there yeah. was there. We started uh, my friend Russ Thornberry who. Uh, started the fishing hole stores in Alberta. Yeah. Um, he started the first guide company uh, on the bow as part of the, the fishing hole. And that would have been about 1975, I think, or six, somewhere in there. And I started guiding for him then. So uh, there was there was virtually no uh, no guiding to, to mount to anything prior to that. And um, there were some people who, who fly fished the bow. I was introduced to it by a, a avid fly fishing friend in 1970 but uh and there and i think back then there was still or there was already the uh calgary hook and hackle club which is a, it's a fly fishing club and it's still going <laughs> and um so there was there were some people yeah. doing it but not it was not a, a you know a thing um it's funny you said it, you said hook and hackle i'm sitting in my tying room and i'm looking at some some tying materials that i know mm. is from like the 70s Maybe okay. the '80s, and it says hook and hackle on it. I don't know if that's anything to do with them, but no, it, that that's a uh, that that was a fly tying wholesaler, and I they and they're still they're still going too. Out of Leftbridge, uh, I think. A, yeah, yeah, they're Leftbridge. Well, yeah. they were Leftbridge now. Um, a guy in Okotoks owns it, unless oh, something okay. changed. Hmm. Uh, Darren, uh, a friend of mine, Darren, and um, where was I? Oh, and the hook and hackle was just a club, right? So they're, right. they're not they're not connected, but yeah, they didn't the same. You know, same sort of arena. Love it. If you like. So if you had to look back, I mean, and I, I suspect you've already named a couple of your biggest influences, but I love talking influences, like, because you okay. influence, you you teach so many, and um, who did you learn from? Like, who did you kind of look to that uh, helped you along? Well, it, um, initially it was books, and, and I didn't have, I don't remember going fly fishing with many people. Um it was, I was mostly on my own for for a while. Um, 
then I learned some stuff from Russ Thornberry when he he, uh, he started the fishing hole, and I worked there a bit uh, in the, uh, in my summers, I guess, when I wasn't at university. And then um, so we fished some, not a lot, because he was running the store and I was doing other things. But uh, later on, um, by far the biggest influence on me was was Lee Perkins because he mm. he became a, a good friend. I did I I don't mean to make it sound like I hung out with him all the time. I I didn't even see him every year, um, but he would he came up and and uh, fished the bow, and I think it was like 1978 or nine, and I've I've been kind of inviting him for quite a long time, and he was never able to make it. And then um, one he came up for one day in September with he and his son Dave um, came up uh, because I'd been um, tempting him with all the, all the stories of the really good rising fish, dry fly fishing that we were having on the boat. And that was his thing. He just loved being able to cast a rising fish and loved the, the Henry's Fork of the Snake and lots of those rivers. And I, I finally convinced him to come up and, and try the boat. And we had a terrific day. And he, he wrote about that day in the Orvis News, which was their in-house well, publication newspaper mm-hmm. thing that went out to all their catalog customers. And at that time, it was the largest circulation fly fishing publication in North America. Um, and so that kind of, we had just kind of spent a couple of years getting the guiding thing going and that um, that sort of propelled it, uh, the bow, the start of getting the bow to be recognized for a really good fishery, you know, um, mm-hmm. particularly for folks in the U.S. And there are lots of magazine articles about it. But at that point, he was coming up every year uh, and he'd bring, you know, his some family friends or some business associates or something and fish the bow for about three days. And so I spent quite a bit of time with him through that period. And that's when I really picked up on, on not just the fishing stuff, but on the, um, he, he was, he was such a, and there's a piece about him in, in this drug tracks book, but, uh, he was, he was a real, um, he, I think maybe one of his greatest traits was his curiosity. He was always you know, wondering why this happened, why that happened, and not just to do with fish. Like you'd be mm. watch, watching the birds and um, and the insects and uh, all kinds of things, and, and he kind of taught me that. And he, yep. he without he, he taught me without teaching me, if you know what I mean. He never said, "Now sit down and listen. I'm going to tell you something." Yeah, it was just by observing him, and uh, he was so experienced. And he he along with another friend, um, now deceased from from Red Deer, uh, Bob's Camel. I think really showed me how you, you you enjoy this stuff. And by this, I mean hunting and fishing. Um, regardless, or you have to enjoy it, regardless of how successful you are. Um, hmm. And one of the things Lee said, and I can't remember exactly, but it's a paraphrase. He said, well, if you only have a good time when the fishing or hunting is great, you're not going to have a good time as often as you should. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, you, that's fair. And those guys both were they were really good at that. They would, yeah. when things went wrong, they'd laugh and and um, you know at the end of every every day, I remember being with them either bird hunting or fishing with Lee. He'd, he'd usually you're having a drink after it's all over. He'd say, "What a great day!" Yeah, that good <laughs> and, good stuff. And he was talking about the day, not about whether the fishing or the hunting was yeah what you might want it to be. So well, that you know so he he's my biggest mentor for sure. Without being an, intentionally being a mentor. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. And and that comes up on this show a lot is is how 
observation is such a huge part of what we do, whether it's observing a hatch, observing swallows, taking something off the water, um, rolling rocks, looking underneath, you know, stones, seeing, yep. seeing what's yep. going on around you. Like, I can't think of a pastime, Jim, that kind of hones those skills any better. Uh, no, I think you're right. And uh, it's it kind of ties to, to something I, I tell to new fly fishers when we're teaching them that the fly fishing it comes with so many questions like if you uh, i tell them that you know the, the general premise of fly fishing is we're going to imitate the fish's real food with the you know the fly we tie on and of course that's an immediately prompts one question what is the real food and, mm-hmm. and then you start digging into that and so and then i i always end this little talk by saying that um in fly fishing every every answer comes with five more questions. Yeah. Oh, it's so true. <laughs> and so it's, it's a, it's a really good thing for somebody who's naturally curious and, uh, and likes, likes, uh, seeking with never completely finding, I guess. Well, as somebody that's been doing it a long time, what are the questions you ask yourself these days? Like, is it still kind of entomology based things or like what, what makes you go? Hmm. Oh, Oh, I do that every day, every time I'm, I'm fishing. I mean, my big, biggest question that comes to mind, it has lots of, uh, <clears throat> I guess, lots of context is just why? Like, there's all these bugs hatching. Why aren't the fish eating them? Yeah. I don't know. They, they were eating them yesterday. Why aren't they eating them today? <laughs> or, um, you know, the water, usually it's why things aren't going the way you think they would. Or sometimes it's the other way. Like, why would the fish eat that stupid looking fly? It doesn't look like anything. Yeah, that's that's been my experience with Euronymphing lately. I'm like, why is that working? I think half the battle is just getting it in the zone, you know? Oh, I would I would think so, yeah. So it's, hmm. you know, we think we're pretty clever when we imitate, uh, you know, insects with our flies, but it, always in the back of my mind is the the possibility that we're, it's all, it's all wrong. That That's not why it happens. It happens for something, yeah. some other reason we don't even understand why they would eat these crazy things. Yeah. You know, the whole thing about, um, that we don't like to talk about, but we, we do think it's important to imitate the the food item, the insect, say, pretty pretty accurately in size and shape and color. But nobody ever wants to, like the elephant in the room, if you like, is what about that big black hook hanging out the end of it? Exactly. What do they think that is? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. What, what, <laughs> we don't really have an answer for that one. So. Yeah. I remember, I remember reading a story about some fellow, like this is 30 years ago that used to cut the actual hook off and just go for the take. I thought, yep. you know, it kind of makes sense in, in some bizarre level, you know? Well, it, yeah, the take is really an important part of the whole thing. I, I've never thought of, but, but another reason to do that would be to see if you get more takes if you don't have a hook on the hook, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. It would, so you would be eliminating what could be one of the real detriments to acceptance if you like it from the fish do you, that'd be interesting to try do you ever think you of, a, with all the technology uh, now like how do we not i mean we got fluoro that you know is supposed to be the same kind of refraction as you know they don't see yeah. it basically in the water yeah you think technology would be that far along that maybe we could have a clear uh, hook you know i know that sounds weird but i think about these well, things. well it doesn't it doesn't i mean why not yeah yeah, that would be interesting. Do you, I would I would like to try cutting the the point off. Sometimes I'm having a real hard time, you know, with a rising fish, and I think mm-hmm. I know what he's eating, and I just can't get him. And that happens quite a lot. Yeah, yep. I never thought of that. I wonder if I just cut the point off. But 
bend in the point off this hook and see if that makes a difference. I, I love see, it. You might learn something. You it, might learn something if you did that. Exactly. And I was talking with a buddy the other day. Like for me, when the fishing is on, that's when we can really learn things. Like when it's quiet that's sometimes right. or when it's quiet. It's like if it's if it's okay, I'm probably not going to experiment. But if it's on, let's see if this will work, you know? Yes. that's Well, we're not inclined to do that because we're too – we want to catch – if something's working, why would you stop doing that? Why? Well, because yeah. you might learn something about um, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I want to take some time, Jim, to get to know you in your day-to-day, kind of not just on the water, but off the water as well. And I know music is a big part in your life, so this this would be mm-hmm. a, an interesting one for me. Uh, if you're heading in your truck to the bow or your favorite stretch, wherever you're headed, uh, what's playing on the stereo? Oh, boy, it would depend on... Um, I don't know what, what what I could find. Uh, first of all, I, it would be on a CD. I don't know that's. Yeah. <laughs> I'm old enough that I, I that's all my music is on is on CDs, um, and it, it varies um, from time to time. The, the music I I kind of I guess I'm most involved in would be a, I guess you'd call it roots music. I'm, I'm a guitar player and I, I I do some solo performance stuff. I'm not a singer. I'm a terrible singer, so I, I, I don't mm. do very much of that. So I, I either play, I play some instrumental guitar stuff, some fingerstyle guitar things, and and I also like to back up other people who are playing and singing. Yeah. So that that's you know that's kind of what I most likely to be doing if if I'm playing in public, uh, and I, so I listen to some of that sort of stuff. But I, I listen to all kinds of things. The other day I uh, revisited. Um, the Jennifer Warren's uh, mm-hmm. CD called "Famous Blue Raincoat." <laughs> yeah. Jennifer Warren's doing all Leonard Cohen songs, and yeah. that's just a fab, fabulous record. It's a great album. I worked in country yeah, radio true. thirty years okay. ago, and I, I worked with this guy from Louisiana, um, George, and he uh, he used to listen to that album, a CD at the time. I guess it was across yeah. while they were just kind of coming out. But uh, man, that thing is ingrained in my head. And you're right; it is a pretty amazing album. Yeah, hmm. um, so I'm glad to listen to that, and I, I also like I like some uh, some jazz stuff, not not the wild and crazy jazz, but there's some, uh, and and I like a lot of vocal jazz tunes. We we um, yeah. the radio station I listen to here in, in uh, Alberta is CK Way, and they they play all kinds of music, and they've got a program called Voices in Jazz, which is uh, it's, it's all vocal jazz stuff and a lot of old tunes you know i really like the the old sort of a lot of the standards from the Mm -hmm. you know 40s 50s that kind of stuff yeah and and, uh, by both male and female singers it seems to me a lot of the best best jazz singers are female i think but um, Mm -hmm. that's not correct do you find that your music kind of takes over in the winter or is it a year-round thing for you well it it, um I, i certainly do more of it in the winter because I have, have more time to, mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, in the summer where we've been, you know, about as busy as we want to be, which is not, I don't mean to say we're every day we're teaching fly fishing, but, uh, we do have stuff on a lot of the weekends through the summer and, uh, between the weekends, we're trying to get organized for the next weekend. And mm-hmm. I'm noticing all that stuff takes, takes more time than it used to 20 years ago. But, um, yeah, in, in the winters when I, I try and, you know, dig up a few gigs and I, I, I do a little bit of, um, I don't even quite know what you call it, but it's sort of long distance session work. I've got a, a bit of a setup here at home so I can record. And mm-hmm. I've got a in particular one friend, Tom Cole, who's a, uh, a country singer, 
produce uh, you know he produces CDs from his his place up in Fort St John BC and he yeah uh, maybe a couple a couple of CDs a year and I'll I'll play on somebody else's CD and I really like doing that I find That's that cool. a real creative creative thing to do at least it feels creative and, I love it. But yep, the winter and I, and I, I I the other thing I really like to do is is we have a great um music uh, acoustic music camp uh, near Calgary called the Foothills Acoustic Music uh, Institute. And uh, it's the May long weekend every year. And they have one in August too. I mean, they, they uh, of course missed two years because of COVID, but it was back on this past May. And, mm-hmm. and it's a whole weekend of nothing, nothing but music. So I, I quite often uh, teach a, a session out there on some kind of guitar thing or something. And it's just the most wonderful time because it's, it starts on a Friday. It's usually the long weekend, so Friday afternoon to about midday on Monday. Yeah. And so it's, it's three days of of guilt-free music. You know, you don't have to sneak it in. That's what you do. You finish up the you're focused classes and stuff, and then about ten o'clock at night, there's all these jams, jam oh. sessions going on all over the place, and and you might you might be up till uh, two maybe. That's, that's <laughs> awesome. That. Yeah. It's just the most spectacular thing for, for you know somebody who loves music like i do it's the hmm. it's the best music at the end of my year every year so awesome when this would be a bit of an odd question for you because it's kind of your life and you know with your fly fishing schools and whatnot but one thing i like to ask is where do you get your fix in the, in the fly fishing space when you're not in your waders or in in the drift boat like is there a coffee shop a fly shop a watering hole or is it social media like where do you get your fix when oh. you're not fishing um, it would be, uh, it's, I, we live, you know, we're about 40 minutes from Calgary, so it's not really a fly shop because I'm just not in the city that much. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I also spent 18 years, uh, on the other side of the counter in a fly shop, but not that that's bad, <laughs> but I, I sort of did my fly shop time. Yeah. Um, although I understand, you know, what, that they're really appealing places. And uh, I would say it's more, um, it, it's more just with, with you know close friends that i that i like to fish with and and um for instance we're we're actually going out to dinner at some friends place tonight and these are this is a couple that linda and i have fly fished with for about uh maybe 40 years hmm. and uh cool so uh, that's that's where i get my my off the water fix yeah um love it yeah, I think that's probably, that's it, probably my mine is doing this because I get to talk to people like yourself okay. from all over the planet, and it's like okay. I I feel just uh, it, you never run out of things to talk about. We keep asking ourselves questions, and and that's why we have you on here so you can give us some answers to some of these questions. <laughs> I don't I don't have many answers. Mostly, when I got are more questions. <laughs> well, that's that's kind of what happens. So uh, when you're on the bow, for instance, and I'm, I'm picking a river here just because okay. it's going to be kind of a specific question. Is there a pattern? And I, I get it's hatch specific, depends on the time of year, but is there one pattern in your fly box that you're reaching for more often than you're not? Um, well, as you said, it would depend on the time of year. Uh, and I, my, my fishing, as everybody's is, is biased toward what you like best and the best, the kind of fishing you like best. And right. In my my case, uh, that is, I, I like I like dry fly fishing, uh, and I like dry fly fishing to rising trout uh, a little more than just fishing blind. So I'll 
I'll kind of bias my fishing. If you want, you know, I everybody knows that the the saying that you know fish feed ninety percent under the water, so you mm-hmm. you, know, you want to catch the most fish, you'll fish there most of the time, and I'm, that's true. But that can be um, balanced or overtaken by your your preference, and you know. So I'm saying, yeah, I know I know that I'd probably catch more fish if I fish against, but I like to fish dry flies better, so I'm going to do that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, I understand so, that. Yeah, um, hmm. it might be something as uh, as simple as a parachute atoms. Yeah, it can a fly that can look a little bit like a lot of things, and so mm-hmm. you can use it a lot of the time. You know, uh, what I tell people again in schools is that if you're going to choose a dry fly, a parachute atoms is never a bad choice. It's not going to work all the time because nothing does. But um, mm-hmm. it's always like, oh yeah, it might work. And quite often it works as well as anything else. So yeah. That'd probably be it, I guess. Are you, um, I always like to talk sports, you know, kind of off the water. Is there a team you're mm-hmm. pulling for? Are you a sports guy? I assume, you know, being where you're at, you're probably Flames or Stampeders or who do you pull for in the world of sports? Well, I I grew up in Edmonton. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's, Although that's... I've now, I guess I've now lived in Southern Alberta longer than I live in Edmonton by quite a bit, by right. a whole bunch of, um, I still have this um, this Euler thing in me. I was I was uh, in Edmonton when the WHA was created, and I, so I used to go to some WHA games. And of course, Gretzky played one year in the WHA before he yep. went to the NHL, or before he came to. Maybe he played more than one year. Maybe he was, I think I, I think he might have played with Indianapolis too. Yeah, it was Indianapolis, but when he came to the Oilers, were they? I think were they in the WHA one more I year? I believe they were. I, I, you know what? Okay. I can look it up, but I think you're right. I don't think yep. it happened right away. Yeah. So anyway, I, I, I liked, I like that. I, I am probably the only guy anybody knows who actually likes both the Flames and the Oilers. So, I, um, you know, that's weird. You said that because I'm just thinking in my brain. I wonder if there's anybody on this planet that actually likes the Flames <laughs> and the Oilers because it's if if you're not a hockey fan and or and or Canadian, it's hard to understand that rivalry. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, yeah, it you is. know, uh, wow. But, no, but I, I do like I do like them both. Um, I was, yeah. uh, I of course followed the whole uh, Kachuk Goudreau thing yeah. here, and I'm I'm really happy that something seems to have gone right in that whole thing with the yeah the the trade with whoever they traded with. I can't remember. Um, oh, oh, from Florida, Florida. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's so, right. Anyway, yeah, that's, it's, uh, it's uh, yeah, it, I, I do follow that stuff, and and as far as uh, I, one thing, I'm not is a, a, a golf guy or an NFL mm-hmm. guy. I do I do have a lot of affection for the CFL. My nephew played I played in the CFL for ten years. Oh wow! So uh, who, who do yeah, you play so, for, Jim? Uh, his name is Spencer McLennan. He played played for the Lions for BC. Yeah, uh, for most most of his career, and he, he then he played in Winnipeg and Montreal. Well, wow. and he he was you know kind of the the sort of standard Canadian. He he was a, a safety and a backup receiver, hmm. and um, and he had he had a you know a decent career. He was never a he, he was a starting safety quite a bit of the time, or a backup receiver. But he he did uh, and he also returned some kicks. He had a um, in his career he had. One touchdown. That was a, a missed field goal return for 115 yards, and uh, <laughs> and he also uh, he played with Doug Flutie and caught, yeah. caught passes from Doug Flutie and Danny yeah. McManus and w- won a Grey Cup and all that sort of stuff. So, That's awesome. 
Yeah, I, yeah. I do remember the name. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm a BC fan. Um, Good. So why do you do this? Like this is, I know this is a loaded question, but I, I think it's important because we spend so much time trying to understand what we're doing out there, sitting at the tying bench in the winter, tying flies, getting ready for trips, spending time on the water. What's the attraction of this whole thing in your mind? Well, that should be a really easy question, but it, it's, it's not, not for me. Um, it's, it's fun. <laughs> it sounds really, sounds really lame. Lots, lots of things are fun. I think it has to do with this, uh, that, that there's always something out there you don't understand and you want to try and understand it a little better. Uh, and of course there's, there's the whole business of fly fishing takes place in beautiful places. And that's certainly part of it. It's, you know, Roderick Haig Brown said, if, if it's just an excuse to be, um, on the water, I'm glad I thought of it. <laughs> that's great so there's yeah uh, and, and there's certainly an, an element of that i do find myself these days as a as a more um <laughs> mature mature much there you go that's the word mature. thank you <laughs> mature fly fisher uh, i wonder why sometimes like why do we have to catch them i mean we, we learn about it. it helps us learn about them i guess but why do we have to catch them why is it not okay just to to know they're there and, mm-hmm. uh, know kind of what they're doing and i have a hard time with that one because th- when i'm there i want to catch them but i'm thinking why do we have to catch them do you think that's a primitive <laughs> thing do you think that's like a hunter-gatherer Maybe. thing at, at the at its core uh, that could well be there's just something there that yeah. yeah and then so do you find yourself explaining to friends that don't fly fish or spend time on the water you what you just let them go you can't you... <laughs> Like, I mean, think, think, think back, you know, 30, 40 years, we weren't necessarily letting everything go, um, just full disclosure, but things have changed a lot. And I find myself explaining that to people and it's just like, they don't, they don't get it. Uh, yeah, that's, um, that does come up and it's a bit of a, you've got to be kind of careful with it because there, I think there's some, uh, validity to the whole thing if you don't explain it and they, they're left to think, so you, you know, you, you just torture these fish and then you let them go so you can torture them again. Yeah, um, I've had well, that. Well, yeah, it's not, we don't see it this way, but um, I do uh, try and show them where catch and release fishing came from that um, mm-hmm. it, uh, yeah, this is a blood sport and, and uh, people somewhere along the line, uh, people discovered that not only could you get food, but it's also fun to do. <laughs> yeah. And again, Hague Brown said that I think the sport fishing started the first time a guy snuck away from the, from the cave and the tribe to go catch a fish when they didn't need fish. <laughs> <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's good. I, yeah, that's a good one. He was pretty good, that guy. Oh yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah. So, um, there, there is something to that. And, um, and then I guess as people got better at, at fly fishing, when they, they didn't want to stop the fun when they had their three fish. Exactly. And yeah. it became kind of a thing, well, why, you know, maybe I can keep fishing if I just let them go. And, you know, Lee Wolf, yeah. I think, was certainly credited with the, getting this going. And and then later on, so it kind of became, started as a philosophy and later on became a a management tool. And, and that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Well, it's both still, but a management tool and, the way I, I justify it to people who 
ask that question is uh, I say, well, if we go, if we take the premise that, that people like to fish and want to fish, um, the three choices, it seems like, or the two, the first two choices maybe are to just let people fish and take all the fish they want or take a bunch of fish and the, the populations will decline and the fishing won't be very good. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we could do that. Um, the other one is just to say you can't fish. We need to protect the fish and you can't fish. Okay, then the fish would presumably be okay, but nobody could fish for them. So uh, catch and release fishing is kind of a compromise. It's not a perfect compromise, mm-hmm. but it is, it's maybe the better of the best of three evils, if you like. Yeah. You know, they're not making any, any new fisheries. They are making, or we are making more fisher people, people who like to fish. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's something got to, something's got to balance that, um, and that is catch and release fishing, where it, where it, where it's you're dealing with a, a self-sustaining wild fish population. Yeah. You know? And the other thing I always like to point out is quite often, I don't want to generalize too much, but a little bit is probably okay, the people who who their knee jerk reaction is that catch and release fishing is is you know immoral and all that sort of stuff. Um, I'm not sure how you would ask this question to one of those people. It depends how you knew them. But okay, you don't like that. Um, but I I will tell you that um, as a I'm a catch and release fisher person mm-hmm. where it makes where it's either regulated by law or where it makes sense. Uh, or where I choose to do it that way, um, I, my fishing also takes me in close contact with the the uh, environment and ecosystem where the fish live, and I understand some of the issues uh, yeah. facing fish populations. So I'm doing some some things, even if it's nothing more than joining Trout Unlimited or the Steelhead Society or something like that, mm-hmm. so that we can we can uh, pay to have experts. Uh, study what's going on and and try and manage these fish, try and protect these fish in the general sense. Yeah. And then I might say, so what are you doing to help these fish that you don't want me to release? <laughs> exactly. Hey, yeah, no, that's you right. Know, it's history. Like it. it's, always, it's the hunters and fishers who are the who are the most protective of the mm-hmm. of the uh, you know the resource. Well, hundred percent. Even though it even though it comes with yes, somewhat of a contradiction. We sure want to you know in the case of hunting, we want to protect all we want lots of ducks around so we can shoot and kill lots of them. well mm-hmm. that's i mean i look at someone like ducks unlimited it, it's it's hunters and fishers and some environmentalists but it's mostly going to be hunters and fishers people that spend mm-hmm. time in the outdoors that want the resource to continue and i think if we're not out there enjoying it we're less likely to protect it right oh i think that's exactly right and we will the number of people who care about it will care about it enough Mm-hmm. will decline if they don't if they they don't have a direct contact with yeah with what's going on out there um, exactly so I, I sometimes use the phrase I, I think in the big picture um, perhaps the the fish need fishermen more than the fishermen need fish wow um, you know just yeah. to I like that I mean we we need we need them because we like to do it and it's fun and all that but they they need us they need somebody to it's symbiotic speak for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and one thing, so granted I'm in the interior of BC, so I'm doing a lot of still water stuff. That's mm-hmm. 90%. But I, yeah. if I had a choice between a lake and a river, I'd take the river every time. Unfortunately, I live in a damn desert. So oh, okay. there's not a lot of them, but 
Um, the thing that I really admire, Jim, especially with the BC fishery, I can't speak for Alberta, but there is something for everyone, right? So mm-hmm. I think it's important that we have those lakes where they're put and take fisheries and they're, oh, you know, they're absolutely. it's okay to take a couple for table fare, which I think that's, that just keeps people vested. It keeps all sorts of people in the sport. And then you have those catch and release lakes, those trophy lakes, you know, and it's a, it's a wide array with everywhere in between. Yes, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because I didn't mean to make it think that I, I am opposed to taking fish home and eating them. Not, not at all. Where it where it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a most of our lakes in Alberta, in fact, almost all of them are, are stocked. Right. And we ha- we have the same thing. We don't have nearly the the number of good lakes that that you do out there, but we have some that are now are regulated so they can't so can't take fish home, and that's so the fish will get bigger and you get a chance to catch bigger fish, and they have aerators and stuff in some places. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them, um, it's a strictly put-and-take thing. The fish have everything they need to survive and thrive except a place to spawn. So they're not going to, you know, they're not going to put any, yeah. <laughs> they're not going to produce any more fish yeah. uh, until they're, they're more are stocked. So, and and I, I agree, that's a completely legitimate thing. Um, and uh, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with, with uh, catching a fish, taking it home to eat it, as long as it's, the the fishery can can um, you know s- still do okay right uh, if you're not if you're not uh, damaging the fishery in some yep. way and that's what a lot said. of people don't don't realize it, in here in Alberta I think I mean most fly fishers I'm pretty sure know this but uh, more casual fishing people probably don't realize that the, the trout in our rivers and streams in our moving water are wild they're not stocked and so they um, we need spawning fish. We need adult fish to be there to, mm-hmm. to spawn and produce more fish. And, yeah. you know, and you could get into the whole thing. Those people might say, well, why don't, why don't you just put more fish in like they do lakes? Well, it, it's, it's been proven that the, the, um, a wild fish is a much superior creature to a hatchery fish yeah. and uh, much preferred for all kinds of reasons. And so we, we want to have wild fish. If you want wild fish, you need spawning fish. So I have this, I have this mental thing that for me, like I don't kill fish. I don't even like the taste of trout, to be honest with you, for the most part. But in I a <laughs> in a river, I never ever kill a fish because I I, yeah. I I did once, you know, in my younger days. And the thing is, is the the flesh is so different, right? Like if you're dealing with a cool high alpine lake that's got a scud population, that mm-hmm. that flesh is red. It's very it's it's quite good. But in a river, I mean, there's it usually doesn't taste as good. That's just been my experience, but um, I think that's probably right. Um, it, it would depend, I guess, on on, on the river for sure. But yeah. in general, yeah, I think uh, when I think of, and I do like the taste of trout. I I buy trout and, and okay, cook them up. But um, I think the best tasting trout is probably a ten inch brook trout from cold water somewhere. Yeah, uh, I agree. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah, no argument there. So I want to get back to my kind of uh, getting to know you off the water a little bit. Do you, do you spend a lot of time at the tying bench? Is that something you're super passionate about? Well, I don't anymore. I did. I, I tied for a long, long time. And uh, when I had the fly shop, I, I taught lots of fly tying courses. Um, and recently, I just haven't had, first of all, I haven't had a good place to do it. We've got a a, a smaller, well, not a terribly small. Anyway, we don't, I don't have a permanent tying setup. Mm-hmm. 
which I think is, that's what I would need. And I know the last few times I decided I was going to tie a few flies, all the stuff was away in boxes someplace. And by the time I, I found, uh, you know, I start digging around for whatever I decided to tie and I'd find eight of the 10 materials, <laughs> but not the last two. And then I'd just say, uh, I'm not going to do this. Yeah. And I realized I wasn't doing it. Um, it's not that I think it's a, it's a fine pastime and it's the winter half of the sport. But, I, you know, I've got, I'm just looking around my little office down here, and I've got stuff everywhere. i got music stands and microphones and magazines and, <laughs> and fly reels. I mean, I've got so much stuff going on. Yeah. Out, you know, <laughs> I don't have a place, and I don't seem to have the, the time to tie flies. But, Are you, so. um, I mean, you alluded to the music. Are, are you, you feel like your life is full of hobbies and there's just not enough hours in the day? Um, yeah, kind of. Um, I, and maybe this is another thing about getting older. I don't have this burning desire to do or to take up, you know, X mm-hmm. something. Um, I don't know, canoeing or, uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I, I feel that I haven't done as much of, or, you know, in as many ways possible, all the things I already like to do. And, um, hmm. you know, music may, might be maybe at the top of that list. I, yeah. I, I just, as, I just as soon do music as anything. That's cool. It's, it's interesting because Linda is, uh, my wife, Linda is, <clears throat> is kind of the opposite. She, um, she's, she still wants to go skydiving. Really? <laughs> hmm. Or hang, or what's the other, some of those other. Hang gliding or. Jump off cliffs yeah. and stuff like oh, that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> zip lining and things. She wants to do that kind of stuff. And she sees her first reaction to something new is, Oh, I want to try that. Yeah. And then, and I'm not like that at all. And in fact, that's what, what got her into, into art. Um, six yeah. years ago, just out of the blue, she said, I think I'm going to take art lessons. Okay. I, I never heard this in the previous, you know, 40 years of <laughs> together. Yeah. So she did. And it turns out she's, pretty darn good at it and you know, they ended up with the illustrations in this latest book and stuff so she's she's much more adventurous at our age and we're the same age uh, than i am um, yeah that's hey that's what makes a good couple you know i guess so yeah no. you're not the same yeah, that's right otherwise it'd be yeah. pretty boring yeah that's hmm. right that's right let's I want to talk jobs because I'm really okay. curious what you're going to have to say about this. The best job you have had to date, like, oh. and I don't want you to slam anything, but like, what, what do you really just go, man, I, I, I want to do that again. I love it. Oh boy. Um, it's a little hard because I, I, I haven't had a job that didn't involve fly fishing <laughs> for, it's been uh, like probably close to 50 years since I've had a job that wasn't fly fishing somehow. Um, I don't know. Like, do you, do you, I guess where I'm going with that is like, do you, I mean, I I read your stuff in fly fusion. I read Mm -hmm. your, your, your books. Um, You always seem to be popping up on fly fishing shows here and there. Like, is there something that you go, I want to do that again. I just really enjoy that at this point in my life. Well, I, I, I have enjoyed, um, and it's not that it's uh, either lucrative or stress-free, but the the TV show thing. I, I did a, a fly fishing TV show in the '90s called Iron Blue Fly Fishing, and 
Mm-hmm. We did two two seasons of that, and then <clears throat> and I more recently did the Fly Fusion TV series with Derek Bird. Yeah, um, that's good stuff. We there, did, we did two seasons on TV, and then one. The third season was just online. And I, I say it's that's not lucrative, and it's not, um, and it's not without its stress for sure. But I, I did like what uh, the results of that were. Uh, mm-hmm. At times, I, I thought we were. In both cases, I thought we were learning how to uh, learning how to do it better the, f- the more we did it. And uh, and I do find that a creative thing, even though a lot of the creativity doesn't come from me. It's from um, camera work and editing and all that sort of stuff. But it, mm-hmm. I do find it kind of fun to, or a lot of fun to, to go do your thing and talk about what you're trying to say and. Yep. And then see what you got because it's not like making a you know a, a TM a, you know a sitcom or something. It's not like okay we're going to do this now. Yeah. And this when this and then when he says this you say that. It, it's not like that. You're depending on a stupid fish, you know. For, yeah. They, they they have to be involved somehow. What <laughs> <laughs> one would hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We uh, you know in my that first go round with iron blue fly fishing we um we. Uh, went to Vancouver Island at one point. We had a bit of an odd shooting schedule because of the network when they needed the shows. So we had to shoot all of our shows between about February and I don't know June or something. Okay. Uh, not not the so we had to look around a little bit to find places where there was fishing was possible. You know, really early. <laughs> so we went to Vancouver Island one year and did uh, we did a steelhead show uh, on on the Gold River. Nice. Uh, in which no steelhead were caught, which would be no great surprise. <laughs> no. Winter, winter steelhead, you know, that's the norm, is not to catch any. Which is okay. We, we managed to get a show out of it. We talked about steelhead and we uh, did a thing. We got a show out of it. But but every time we'd be after that, we'd be shooting another show somewhere. And if if the fishing wasn't exactly going very well, you know, early on, we'd take usually two days to shoot a show. And if by the end of the first day, we hadn't really got much of usable footage with fish mm-hmm. the the director who's a really good friend of mine we'd look at each other and say we've already done a no fish fishing show i'm not sure we can do two <laughs> that's it <laughs> sounds like pressure to me <laughs> well it does yes yes uh, uh, certainly, certainly yeah. there is it so uh, maybe my time has passed for doing that too because of the pressure but i did i did find it creative and i like yeah. it and of course i i really like the, the playing music stuff that's yeah. Um, and you know the guiding and teaching i i, I like them all mm-hmm. um i seem to sort of slide from one to the other a little bit they all kind of have a yeah. um best before date or something yeah uh, that's fair what's the worst guiding, job what's with, something you did in your past oh. you're like i don't want to do that again <laughs> uh well i think i can tell you although it's <laughs> probably not going to sound very good i i got a, a an education degree in um from the University of Alberta so I was I was uh that's a bit of a, a long story well I'll make it short I, I I wanted to learn more about music I couldn't get into the music program at the university because I didn't play a concert instrument right you know I didn't play violin or, or a, you know cello or a trumpet or something so uh, my sort of backdoor way to do it was to to get into the education uh, faculty with a music major so mm. I did that and I ended up being qualified to be a, uh, you know, a school teacher, an elementary school teacher. And, right. um, I, 
mostly what I learned from getting that degree and certainly from the um, practicum student teaching I did and a little bit of substitute teaching I did um, one winter was uh, this ain't for me. <laughs> so it's uh, there's pressure there, and there's all kind. Of, it's not. No, it's not easy. You know, right? I have a very, you know, and it's interesting because one of my profs, uh, when I was, I don't know, maybe my last year at university, said, you know, I'm not sure about you and this teaching thing. And she said, uh, <laughs> if there's anything else you'd rather, you'd like to do as much as you want to be a teacher, you should probably do that. <laughs> Wow, and that was in your last year. Well, I might not have been my last oh, year, man. and it might not. She might have even been saying that to the class in general. I can't remember, but I wow. remember hearing that sometime in university, thinking, "Oh yeah, well, whatever." That that's and uh, then I mean, it was absolutely true. You've got to be really have a special, yeah, I don't know, streak in you to 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 really be a good teacher and to hmm. to you know do it well. That's a, that wasn't me. That's I, a, I think I teach okay, but I not not in that setting. Well, that's <laughs> I was just going to kind of get into that because you have fly fishing school, and I know that uh, it's very well known. A lot of people do it, and I know it's something that you love. So at least you're teaching. That's a different thing, right? You're sitting on a river and waders. It's a little different than sitting in a classroom. Oh, it's much different. And and the big difference is the people who do this are doing this or attending this or involved in this by their own choice, their own desire. Yeah. And uh, nobody is mad about being there, you know. No. <laughs> Everybody wants to be there, and that makes a huge difference. So that's good. And yeah. yeah, it's and you don't have uh, parents. I remember one of my student teaching things. I uh, I kept my class of whatever they were, grade threes or something, about five minutes extra at noon one time because uh, they wouldn't get quiet. I just said, okay, I'm not gonna let you go home till you get quiet. So it took about five minutes, and then they went home, and I got a phone call from a parent. Hmm. Uh, angry about doing that and i thought oh boy is this what oh yeah yeah <laughs> is this how this works <laughs> because it didn't when i was a you know a kid. i come from you a know, family anyway. of teachers so i feel that pain ah um, okay but i it's you a know, tough thing to do man you you just hit you hit a, a, a sensitive spot for me i not not to talk about me too much but i i took um radio course and so mm-hmm. my previous career was in radio but i remember the day that i graduated from the course the owner of the school said I don't think you're cut out to do this. And I went, I went, are you serious right now? I got a job. I got a job the next day and then I did it for years, but it's just, it's just like, is that supposed to motivate? I don't know. I don't understand people that do that. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Interesting. Talking about radio. My brother uh, was in radio and still is in radio. Um, He, he lives at Ken Loops and he's a cowboy and he, has a radio program called The Spirit of the West. Hugh, Hugh McLennan. Yeah. No way. Yeah, I used to, I, I've met Hugh. I, oh, I used okay. to play, I used to play his, uh, man, he's hardcore, like into the, the, the bluegrass and the, uh, the older stuff, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, Spirit cow, of the West. Stuff, yeah. yeah. I used to play it on uh, Great Valley's radio uh, back in the oh, day. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. I yeah. wondered if you guys were related, but yeah. I thought, no, that's yeah. a long shot. Huh. No, that's, uh, that's him. <laughs> he's, he's a keener. He, yeah, wow. He's a keener. He's uh, probably Canada's most famous cowboy. Yeah, yeah. He was always talking about Ian Tyson and. Uh, yep, all those. All yeah, those yeah. Cool. Yeah, love it. Anyway, six degrees of separation. There you go. So, That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you had to look at all the places you've fished over the world, 
and over, say, North America, is there somewhere that's near and dear to your heart? I mean, I know the bow is, but is there somewhere you go, man, I, without giving away too many secrets, I want to go back there. Uh, yeah, there's so many, so many places. Certainly, um, all the, the, the streams that we have around home are, would be my favorites. And I don't have one favorite. I, I have lots of favorites. They're like children, you know, you have, you don't just have one favorite. Yeah. Um, some of the places that I've been, uh, I've been to New Zealand three times, but not, Boy, not recently though. The most, the last time was uh, 1995, um, and there's really something special about that place. I would, yeah, uh, I, I would like to do that again. I probably won't. And um, when I was working for Orvis as a sales rep, my my territory was basically the Northwest and Canada and the U.S. So I I was driving around a lot through through Montana and Wyoming and Idaho and and uh, and I. I've also been there to various places and there to fish over the years. And, and there's just something really um, distinctive about the the culture and everything of, of, you know, Montana fly fishing, you know, you got these trout towns where there's, where fly fishing is what supports the town, place like Craig, Montana on the, on the Missouri river and, cool. yeah. and Ennis and, and the Madison and stuff like that. And uh, I would, I would like to just take another tour down through there with a little more time. I, I used to only half jokingly say that when I when I was working for Oversight, nobody drives across more great trout streams without fishing them than I do. Because you know, in the course of the day, I I drive across the the Missouri and the Madison and the Gallatin and oh, yeah. and maybe look to the Yellowstone and just you know it was it was my work. I was on you know I was on my sales trip and so <laughs> there goes another great one. Well, no time to fish that today. <laughs> yeah, that would be hard for me to to well, to be there yeah. but not be there. You know. Exactly, that's what it was. I just drive it, slow down as I cross the bridge and look at it. And say, oh, okay, yeah. one of these days. And I mean, it's not like I never fished on my trips, but not as much as people would have thought. I used to have a wine sales job, and I uh, did oh, okay. basically all of BC, um, outside of Vancouver, pretty much, and uh, north to I don't know, let's say Field. But I used to spend a lot of time on the elk, and I was just I would time my trips like, yeah. oh, I'll go hit this and that and this and that, yeah. you know, do a couple calls and go catch some cutthroat. That was good yeah. living. Hope my boss isn't listening. But uh, yeah, I do. I do remember in. in uh, I had a. I guess I did have a dealer in Craig and uh, on the Missouri. And I remember one day, I was waiting for a call back from somebody, and I had, it was going to determine whether I was hanging around there for a little longer or not. And I just went down to the bridge in Craig and put on my waders and put my. These are the kind of the early days of cell phones. Even I had the cell phone in my pocket and I was walking up the river looking for fish while I was waiting for my call from the office to tell me, you know, what was happening next. I thought, well, this is kind of cool that I can do this. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, your re- your roots go pretty darn deep um, with, it sounds like, with Orvis, knowing Lee Perkins. And, and are, are you an Orvis guy? I assume you are to this day, but uh, let's talk rods. What do you like to use? Well, I, I'm... I'm I'm unofficially an Orvis guy. I have no... We have no... Um, mm-hmm you know, connections, formal connections with, with any, any of the tackle companies. Um, I'm most familiar with the Orvis stuff because I've used it the longest, although I've, I've been out of the loop with, with everybody's stuff um, pretty mm-hmm. much. Uh, uh, what I would say about, uh, about tackle, particularly rods, is um, 
that the I think the the best thing that's happened, or one of the best things that's happened in the last you know, twenty years, I suppose, is the uh, elevation of the quality of lower price point rods. Um, yeah, it, you know, a rod that um, is a two hundred dollar rod today is was better is probably better than the most expensive rods uh, that you could find twenty years ago. Yeah, that's and, true. Um, so there's there's so much good stuff out there. I don't think, at least from the companies that, that are f- true fly fishing companies, um, I don't think there's, I mean, there's rods, everybody's going to prefer one rod over another one. And they, once they try them, they'll know which one they like best. But, uh, other than that, I mean, there's, there's not much junk out there. <laughs> no, that's fair. Do you, do you prefer yeah. a, a fast action or a slow action? Like, are you a glass guy? Or are you a graphite guy? What, what's your preference there? Um, I'm a, a graphite guy, um, more of a, a medium, medium fast, I guess. I, I don't, mm-hmm. I, when I'm fishing something other than the bow, most of our other streams, you would call either small to medium sized rivers. You know, we only have really the one big river trout stream and the rest of them are um, re- almost all, re- all the rest you fish on foot. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I'm, I'm making a lot of, you know, 20 to 40 foot casts on those streams. Yep. Uh, and so I, I, I like a rod that behaves well, really nicely at that distance. Mm-hmm. So I cast a rod, I can't remember what it was the other day that somebody had, and I thought, man, this sure casts 60 feet beautifully, but I just don't do that that much. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you, what's, uh, what's your go-to for length and weight, like for those types of waters? Oh, if, if I'm, if I'm, um, floating the bow, it'll be an, it'll be an, nine foot five or maybe a nine foot six if i think i'm on a fish streamers mm-hmm. the nine foot five is good for um for um you know hopper dropper dry dropper sort of stuff and yeah and any kind of nymphing things you want to do and the wind um <laughs> and the wind yep and and uh if i'm waiting one of these other streams uh like the the crow's nest or the old man it, it'll be uh, and this will surprise some people it'll be an eight and a half foot four or five weight. I find I'm a little more accurate with an eight and a half foot rod. If I'm standing, if I'm on foot and I, and I'm, you know, not drifting, uh, I just find I'm a little more accurate with an eight and a half foot rod. So Interesting. eight and a half, five or eight and a half foot yeah. four. And, uh, Are you, have again, you... I bias my tackle towards my preferred kind of fishing. So, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'll have the perfect setup to fish dry flies on the, on the crow's nest, you know, that probably be an eight and a half foot five weight. Yeah, if I and once in a while I might want to throw a streamer or a big nymph, and yeah, if I had a six weight, it would do that better. But I don't care. I mm. want to be best equipped for my favorite kind of fishing. So. Yeah, well, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Hmm. Good stuff. Um, I, I want to ask you kind of a philosophical question, and uh, okay, this, how do you feel about where we're at? in the fly fishing space these days like are you is there anything that kind of irks you that goes man why are we doing this or or we could be doing this better but like where do you think we're at as as a group overall well i think there's there's a lot of good things and a lot of uh, a lot of things that maybe aren't so good I, i suppose mostly the things that aren't so good are just personal personal stuff about you know crowded fishing and that kind of thing i think we are producing first of all we're fly fishing is growing and it's growing um kind of across the demographic range i suppose and mm-hmm. one of the one of the really good things is the the number of women who are now doing it um the industry's been sort of predicting that and 
promoting that for a long time. Back when I was with Orvisan before that, they were, you know, they would have, you know, waiters and vests for women and all that sort of stuff, but it never quite happened, but it's happening now. Mm-hmm. And certainly, you know, people like April are, have a, played a big part in that, I think. Yeah. Uh, so that that's one of the really good things. Um, old grumpy guys like me wish there weren't as many people on the water. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, me too. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's that's kind of a uh, not much we can do about that. I mean, I guess we can go to a limited uh, participation, you know, where you've got a book days and all that sort of stuff. And I, I really hope it doesn't. That doesn't happen, although that's maybe just an old guy talking. Uh, the good thing is I think we're, we are uh, developing a generation of fly fishers with a, uh, who've come to fly fishing probably already having an environmental background or appreciation. Mm-hmm. You know, in my time, you got that maybe through your involvement in fly fishing. Um, but now the people who come to fly fishing already know how important the environment is, I think. And that's good. So, I mean, we're in good hands that way. I suppose maybe this just popped into mind that um, something that might kind of summarize both the good and the bad uh, would be the Internet and social media. Um, um, yeah. The good thing is it, it's it's made fly fishing more accessible, uh, more easy to learn uh, than, it ever, than it's ever been before um, with the videos and, uh, yeah. you know, the YouTube and all that kind of thing. And the, the bad, of course, is it, it can um, it can um, put people it can it can cause some crowding and and one of the elements that uh, actually I talked to a, a, a new fly fisher on the phone yesterday and he was saying I, I, I really don't know where to go um, and so I made some general suggestions on what parts of the province he should look at and then he said why. Well, I'm going to have some more time now. I don't know what, what the circumstance was. And, and I, I understand that, that doing the exploring on your own and finding places is, is a big part of the tradition of the sport. And, mm-hmm. and I, I thought, great, because here's a, a, a newer fly fisher who understands that. And, and it always has been part of the sport. You, you know, somebody will tell you a place or something and, and you'll go check it out or you'll check out places on your own or you'll get a map. And, uh, I guess maybe these days it would be uh, Google Earth to yeah. Oh, yeah. find some find, find a place that looks like it seems like it might be good and go find out. Yeah, just stay uh, off those now, de- deactivated forest roads from 10 years ago on Google Earth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, check the date of the photograph. Um, and But now I think some people are, are maybe, and it's just a product of our culture, I guess, less patient and, and they want to know where to go. Where do I go to do this? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, it's not quite like it's not like playing golf where you okay. Here's the phone number. Call and book a tee time. It's um, mm-hmm. you know. So I guess the, that that's some of the one of the issues. I guess is how will we handle the increase in popularity of, of yeah. Our, it's of something thing we love. I think about that a lot because it's it, mm-hmm. like you say. It's a it, for me. It's a double edged sword. We want people to get into it. Oh, that's absolutely. how they're you know. Absolutely. It's going to be protecting the resource. They're going to be out there doing it. They're going to be buying fly rods, buying yes. flies. You know, it's good for the economy. You know, getting that guide on the bow or whatever. But we yep. also know that the the flip side of that is it's damn busy, right? So, but I I yep. don't know. It's uh, that's why I like the Stillwater thing a bit because you can 
if there's 10 people on a big lake, that's nothing. If there's 10 people on a small stretch of river, it's a little different. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, I I don't fish lakes very much, uh, not because I don't like it. Just again, it's one of those things I don't seem to have time to do both, Yeah. but that, that is a thing for sure. You can find, uh, I think solitude on a lake, you can still have solitude in a lake if you, if there are other boats in sight. Yeah. Uh, maybe when you're on a river, if there are other fisher people in sight, maybe that then mm-hmm. that is not solitude or something. I don't know. Yeah. No. I, I, Although solitude may be more available on on a lake than than on a stream these days. I think that's. And I know people who, are, who have switched because of that. I have a good friend who, who fishes both, but he's kind of gone mostly lakes lately. He just said there's so many people on the streams, and and it, it only bothers you if there's a lot of people in the streams, if you fished them long enough that you remember when there weren't. Yeah. You know, some people, they, they go and there's, uh, you know, three or four cars at this one spot. Uh, that's the way they've always seen it. So, okay, well, here's where we're fishing. Three or four <laughs> cars. Well, yeah, there's always three or four cars. Let's go. Whereas I get there and I think, three or four cars? Yeah. I'm going <laughs> to keep driving. here. Yeah. I'm going to so, keep driving. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's just, a lot of it's your uh, your perspective, you know, and your yeah. point, of, point of view and what you're comparing it with. So, People always say, is the boat crowded? And I say, compared to what? That's a comparative term. Is it crowded to, compared to what it was like 30 years ago? It sure is. Is it crowded compared to the, the San Juan or the or the Bighorn <laughs> or the Madison? Nope. <laughs> so, yeah. Right on. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been reading your stories on fly fishing for a lot of years, and I'm, I'm curious mm-hmm. if... Is there a, a story or a couple of stories that comes to mind? I always like to say, is there anything bizarre that's happened to you? Like, you're not going to believe it. And I know the longer we do this, the more crazy things happen. But is there anything that's kind of front of mind that you go, wow, this, this is a great story. You wouldn't believe this, but this actually happened. Hmm. Um, I'm trying I'm trying to think. Um, like weird wildlife well, encounters or, um, you know. Um, never been chased by a bear or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing I would say is, uh, this is just what popped into mind. I, I lost my boat on the boat one day. Oh, wow. And this is way, way back. And we were using John boats and we hadn't figured out that anchoring your boat is a good thing to do. So we just pull in when we wanted to stop and fish on foot, we'd pull in and, and just drag it up on the rocks a, a few feet so it wouldn't drift away. And, and, uh, so I did this and, uh, so that we could fish a little side channel. So we parked the boat on the wide side of this island and, and walked over to the narrow side and fished there and got down to the end of the island. And I saw you know, a, a John boat kind of drifting along out there. And I thought, well, that's odd. There's a John boat and there's nobody in it. <laughs> well, that's kind of funny. It looks a lot like my, it is my boat. <laughs> so, so I had to run, basically to run after it in the water and, and I got it. Uh, I had to, I didn't have to swim for it, but I waited as fast as I can. And if you've ever tried speed wading in oh. waist deep water, it's not that speedy. No, Crazy. <laughs> but I was able to I make kind of a, a lunge for it. And I got my hands on the gunnels and I climbed in and rode to shore. And then I just laid there. I think it's the most physically exhausted I've ever felt. <laughs> Cause it's like, <laughs> if I don't get this now, I can see where it was going. If I don't get it now. It's gone. Uh, I'm, I'm not getting it. I mean, yeah. until it, you know, it, it gets caught somewhere and meantime we're here with it <laughs> stuck oh, so it's like if you're gonna get this you gotta you gotta get it right now <laughs> so you're all anyway, it was a weird one but hmm. there's lots of little little weird things that happened but that that's the one that came to mind love it <laughs> um 
I know that, so Linda does all the artwork in your latest book, Trout Tracks, so I'm, I'm, I know she's the artist, but you're an artist too. I mean, you're doing your thing with your music, and I want you to put on your artist hat, paint a picture of your perfect day. So if you could have your day pans out exactly how you want it, what type of water are you fishing? Who are you hanging out with? What kind of flies yeah, okay. are you throwing? What, what does that look like? Uh, okay. Um... It would probably be a day in, uh, uh, maybe in September. Um, I would probably, how, how about this? I, I would go down on the bow and I would hope there was some, uh, we had a trico spinner fall. That's a little tiny mayfly mm-hmm. that has a, a heavy spinner, spinner fall in the mornings in uh, August and September. And I would probably be there with with Linda, and we would be looking for rising fish. We'd um, have some, and we'd cast some. We'd catch a few. It wouldn't really matter how many. Then we would um, we would get back in the car, and we would take the dogs out in the prairie and chase some Hungarian partridge with the wow. with our with our setters. And uh, it, like, it's like it's it. really kind of cool. To, I a few times I have done both those things in the same day, and I don't know why it just feels really cool. Like boy, there's nothing. This is good. This day had everything, and so that's yeah. what I would. That's what I would try and do. That's awesome. You know, and, and the great thing about it is, it's pretty possible. Maybe I will. <laughs> <laughs> are Hungarian partridge the same as chuckers? Are they the same thing? Uh, no, Hungarian okay. partridge. The, the I guess the formal, more official name is gray partridge. Okay. And no, they're different. Okay. We've got them. They live out in the green country here. You, uh, hmm. you probably have uh, in the Okanagan. Certainly up around Kamloops and the Fraser Canyon, they've got chuckers. And you've got quail, too, don't yeah, you? Yeah, quail. Lots of chuckers around yeah. here, too. Yeah, that's... I chuckers, was, too? Okay. They look somewhat similar, but different animal. Okay. Yeah, the huns are a little smaller. They're, they would be between the quail and chuckers in size. Mm. And, uh, they're, a, they're a covey bird. They live in groups of 5 to 15, generally, and they're just a fabulous game bird. They live out in the grain country, out sort of eastern alberta sort of south and eastern alberta fabulous yeah. little bird love so, it that sounds like a pretty good day. day so and when it you, does, doesn't it? you get you you get back home is there is there a campfire or is it too hot or are you, are you hanging around having a glass of something with linda what what are you enjoying uh, at the we, end of the day we probably uh we have a little fire pit in the backyard that we don't seem to use for fire very much we'd probably we'd probably sit on the deck and just enjoy the you know the last part of the day and hmm. think about what we just done. What's in and the glass? That we've been able to do it. Oh yeah, you're a wine guy. I, I'm I'm well, not a wine guy. <laughs> I, I like a lot so of things. I, well, Throw it out there. I'm I'm kind of an expert uh, on uh, because I think uh, there's two colors, right? I like red. That's that's what I know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's, <laughs> this makes me sound. Yeah, really all that matters is what you like. So, is there scotch well, involved here? Is it a cold beer? Uh. No, I'm not. I'm not a beer guy. I I do like uh, a little bit of scotch sometimes, but there's a lot of difference, a lot of variety in scotches. Oh yeah. And I do have some friends uh, who are quite knowledgeable, and I've tried different kinds. Some of them I don't like much at all, and some of them I quite like. So yeah. But I, of course, I didn't take note of which they which was which. So if somebody offered me a scotch, we don't have any scotch here. But if somebody offered me a scotch on the day after the hunt, I would I would say yes. I do carry a little flask, not when I'm. Not when I'm hunting, but at the end of the day, it might have a little bourbon or something in it. Mm-hmm. Just kind of as a way to, to toast the day when it's over. Love it. Um, Love it. Well, yeah. 
you know, I, I really appreciate you, Jim, taking the time. I know, I know you're a busy guy and um, really enjoyed chatting with you and finding out. If, if somebody wants to kind of sign up for one of your fly fishing schools or, um, you know, what's the best place to get a hold of you? Uh, where, where do we find you? Well, the best, the best place is certainly um, through our website, which is mclennanflyfishing.com. So you have to spell McLennan correctly, which is M-C-L-E-N-N-A-N. And we've got, uh, on the site, we've got all the information about the schools and links to send us an email mm-hmm. to ask questions or to sign up. And, and we can also, I can also, if somebody wants a book, uh, Trout Tracks book or, or the other my watermarks book, um, you can do the same thing, just send an email and I can make an arrangement to to uh, mail it to you and I can, you know, yeah. personalize it and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, that, that's kind of the... the the place where you can find all the stuff. There's even a bit of music stuff there and some photography stuff. Awesome. Lots of things on the site. Blue Ribbon Bow and 87 Trout Streams of Alberta in 99. Um, Fly Fishing Western Trout Streams in 05. The, the latest book is Trout Tracks Essays on Fly Fishing by Jim McLennan. Check it out. Thanks so much for joining us this time around. And Jim, have a great rest of the summer and, and thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Oh, it was great, Mark. Uh, you, do a, you do a really good job at this. Those are terrific questions, and uh, I enjoyed. You brought out stuff I didn't know was going to come out, but that's great. I like that. I love it. Thanks again. Okay. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.